1: Thank you so much for joining us at in today's teleconference. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, and I'm honored and delighted to have with us two of my brilliant attorneys from the Murthy Law Firm, Pam Janice, who is both a member and the coordinator for the PERM Green Card Department, and Jim McLaughlin, who's been doing PERMs for a while now. We have a rockstar team in the firm, and you guys have a rockstar team today that you will have the privilege of hearing a discussion from. So what our plan today is to go over the form and to give you some tips on the sorts of issues that you need to look out for to improve your chances of an approval. As all of you can appreciate, PERM is an extremely complex part of the green card process. Our topic today, as you probably already hopefully know, is the perils of PERM, tips for successfully completing the 1989 for labor certification. So we really hope to discuss the perils of PERM as it relates to the completion of the Form 1989. And our attorneys will go over some of the common issues that we think are going to become traps. And for all of you who are listening, who are heads of human resources or owners of smaller companies or in the immigration department, some of these ideas and tips today will really help you to appreciate areas that you need to watch out for and areas that will help you to find the traps and look at it. So let's get started with a preliminary introduction. If I can, Jim, with you, what exactly is the labor certification in Form 1989 and what's the purpose of the labor certification?
2: Oh, thanks, Sheila. Generally, the labor certification is the first stage of a three stage process to get uh, green cards for most professionals. Labor certification is the first stage of that process, followed by the I 140, eventual 45 or consular processing once prior to date's current. Now, the labor certification is filed with the Department of Labor. It's filed in the Form 9089 through the Department of Labor's Electronic Filing System, PERM system, for the Program Electronic Review Management System. Now, the purpose of the labor certification is to test the labor market to determine if there are any able, willing, qualified U.S. workers who are able to take the position. From an employer's point of view, the great thing about the labor certification process is you're able to fill that that position within your firm that you were not able to fill otherwise. From an employer's employee's point of view, you're able to... Uh, permanent remain within the United States obtain that green card and stay here permanently from the Department of Labor's point of view they want to make sure that there isn't a shortage uh, they want to ensure rather that there's a shortage of able willing qualified US workers for this position and that by hiring this foreign national you're not going to adversely affect US workers whether with wages or working conditions
1: Wow, that was a lot, and I think what it really goes to show, if I can try to summarize what Jim just said, which is oh my god, you as an employer will need to establish that there isn't one other living soul in the United States or in that region that is ready, willing and able to perform that job who has a who can meet at least the minimal qualifications. That sounds like a pretty tall order to meet so pam what are the general guidelines that the employer needs to consider to prepare a strong and good labor certification filing
0: well i think we can divide it pretty easily into four components number one is the position number two the minimum requirements number three the prevailing wage and then number four is the recruitment all of these parts fit into that ultimate assessment of whether there is an able, willing, qualified US worker for the position. Now, when you're talking about the position, there's two things. It can be either the position that they're in right now, or it can be the position that they're likely to move into in the future. The thing you have to keep in mind is that labor certification is not a sprint. It's a marathon. For a lot of individuals, especially if they were born in India or China, there's going to be a long waiting period between when they start this process and when they ultimately get their green card. So it may be that you hired someone in as a programmer, an entry-level programmer. They may not necessarily be in that same programmer role five, ten years from now. Maybe they'll be promoted up. It may be that you have a standard vertical route that people generally ascend over the course of their employment with you. So the first thing you want to decide is, are we going to file for the position they're in right now or are, they, are we going to file for the position they're going to be in down the road? And it, Along with that, if you decide that you're going to file for the position that they're in right now, and that person is, say, in H-1B status, it's very important that whatever you say is consistent with what you've said previously about that position in, say, an H-1B petition. Which brings me to the second part of this, the minimum requirements. And this is important for a whole host of reasons. Number one, Um, it's going to help determine what the prevailing wage is. Number two, the individual needs to show that they meet it, and any applicants need to show that they meet it in order to be considered qualified. And a lot of employers struggle with this, especially since... Uh, You may be dealing with some pressure from your employees. You know, everybody wants to go EB2, but we can't let the tail wag the dog. Ultimately, the question here is, what are your actual real-world minimum requirements? Essentially, the Department of Labor is saying, pretend you don't know this individual. Pretend you have an empty cubicle and you need to put a programmer in it what is the minimum amount of education and experience that you can accept and still get someone who can competently perform this role? And if you can honestly answer that question, that will tell you what your real world minimum requirements are. Okay. Sorry, Sheila. (laughs) So like I said, that leads us to what the prevailing wage determination is. And Little teaser here, the next teleconference is going to solely deal with prevailing wage determinations because the employer needs to commit to pay that wage, at least that wage, from the time the person becomes a a permanent resident working in that position. So it's very important to keep in mind higher requirements are going to lead to higher wages. And then based on those, recru- that education and experience requirement and the prevailing wage determination, you're going to use that as your foundation to engage in the required recruitment for that position, which, if it's a professional position, is going to be a job order uh Two Sunday newspaper advertisements, a notice at the actual worksite location, and then three additional forms of recruitment from a list of 10 that the Department of Labor provides. So, this is a big investment of time and money from the employer since the employer is required by law to pay for the advertisements and the labor certification process. So, it's really important that they spend a good chunk of time concentrating on those first three things the position. The minimum requirements and the prevailing wage before they think about moving forward to the
1: recruitment. Okay, thank you very much, Pam. And you know, as Pam just said, the next month's teleconference is on prevailing wage determinations. And part of the reason that we changed our strategy uh, to actually focus on looking at the form in much greater detail or looking at the prevailing wage determination was because. Uh, we were doing sort of the bigger picture H1s, green cards, uh, you know, 485 adjustments, approvals, all of those cases, sort of bigger picture. And then we really figured out that companies, employers, HR people, immigration staff that's working on immigration would really appreciate greater guidance on what to look out for, what are the nu- nuances, what are the traps that could get you in a funny place and result in not getting an approval. And so we figured we would share some incredible uh, tips and ideas and what to keep in mind in terms of the big picture. And then figuring out that if you didn't feel comfortable either doing it in house or working with the lawyers because of the huge, almost 50, close to 45, 50% audit rate or the huge number of denials that many of uh, many lawyers and law firms seem to unfortunately have with labor certifications, that you can work with the best and the brightest in the world the Murthy Law Firm Immigration Team, the PERM team here. So let me just explain that, as you know, drafting the 1989 uh, is a matrix system. It's extremely complex because each question is extremely uh, integrated and uh, important because they're connected with each other. So if you leave out something in a form or you mention something incorrectly in a particular section, the Impact the ripple effect it will have on a different section of the form can be devastating for you as the employer and, of course, for the employee because you could potentially lose one of your most valuable employees in this process after having spent, unfortunately, several thousands of dollars and having dealt with a lot of time and stress in the process. Um, it will impact the I. Obviously, if the well, permit is either delayed with an audit or doesn't get approved, it will prevent the I 140 and 485 in being filed. Um, And as Jim had initially alluded to, the PERM is the foundation of the entire green card process. So you mess up something here the ripple effect can be devastating. And with that, let's plunge right into the most important section that we always start with in the early on in the form, which is Section H. As we're focusing on the two or three most important sections like Section H and Section J, I'm just touching upon Section K, mainly because all of the other information is comparatively more straightforward, but these sections really dive into the nuances, nitty-gritties, and complexities of the process. So, Pam... Why is Section H, the Proffered Position and the Minimum Requirements, important?
0: Well, Sila, this is really the the meat and potatoes of the PERM form, and this is the part that deals with the details of the Proffered Position. So everything I was talking about before with the position title, is it current or future, and the minimum requirements, this is all where we expound it. And it's very important that we be very careful with this section because this needs to be consistent with the prevailing wage form, the 9141 form, which is the prevailing wage determination, and any subsequent advertisements. So an error here or an inconsistency here can throw apart the whole case. Um, there are a couple things that I want to focus on in here. I mean, we talked a little bit about the title and the minimum requirements, how you know it can be the current or future position, but I'd like to delve into a little bit about those requirements. And so I want to start off actually um, a little out of numerical order with question H5, which talks about training in the field. And I see sometimes where this is a little bit of a trap for employers because they're not thinking of this in terms of the the Department of Labor's terms what this really means is not necessarily that the person have something like a certification in something. Um, You know, we're looking for someone who is a Oracle certified person. Well, that's not something that would go here. That's something that would really go later on in the H14 section, which is special skills. The training section is referring to something that has a standard course of standard program, a standard time period that's associated with it, with a beginning, a middle, and an end that can be documented, the time that it took and the end result. For example, Uh, It's normal for physicians to require completion of a residency, or if they're in a specialist position, completion of a fellowship. Those have a standard program, a standard period of time, and there's usually a certificate or a letter from a hospital at the end of that. So something like that would be a standard training program, and that you can indicate on there that completion of that program is required, and you can indicate the number of months that are normally associated with that program it's important that you be very careful with what you list in that training section because sometimes employers will list training when what they mean is experience, or they'll list training, but what they really mean is knowledge of something that they've gained through coursework or a certificate or through experience and if you list it in training then you need to provide the required documentation to show completion of that period of training that you've listed in there in that specific thing that you've listed that they need training in and that can be a problem down the road at the i-140 stage so when you say training do you really mean training or do you mean a specific skill or special requirement if you mean the second, then it should go in H14. And then continuing on with that same train of thought, the, exper- the I, I want to move to question H6. You have to read H6 and H10 together. And I know this is confusing, the, the 9089 form has a little bit of a logic flow problem. And the good news is is that the proposed revised form that they, that they um, released 2009 and that still hasn't been implemented, that proposed form is going to fix some of this logic uh, logic flow problem. But in the meantime, you need to look at H6 and H10 together. So along with your minimum experience that you list in H4, do you require a certain amount of experience in the job offered, H6, or in an alternate occupation? And part of the reason, and that's what comes out of H10, and part of the reason why you need to look at those carefully is a lot of times employers will say, oh yeah, we need experience in the job offered, without thinking about what that actually means. Because we've seen a recent trend of the USCIS saying, well, if you only accept experience in the job offered, then your past experience with a previous employer needs to match what you list as the job duties. So if you have a past job where For example, let's say that the the sponsored position, H the job offered listed here, is for a programmer. And among the skills that you're using are Java and SQL. If you have previous experience as a programmer, but your experience doesn't say Java and SQL, then USCIS can say, I'm sorry, you don't have experience in the job offered, and can potentially deny the I-140 just on that grounds. So when you're saying job offered, You mean this exact
1: job. So That's pretty scary. It is very scary. (laughs) And an employer might think, well, it's pretty close to the job offered. Why should I put it in the stupid alternative experience requirement in Section H10? Section H works fine, H5 but that could result in a denial for the employer. Correct. Like I said, this is definitely
0: a recent trend that we've been seeing with USCIS for employers that weren't aware or who did not take advantage of that alternate occupation that's listed in H10. So before you jump to say yes to experience in the job offered, think carefully. Do I mean in this exact job or do I mean in this job and related jobs? because you can say related jobs. The H-10 alternate experience is a very flexible field. You can list multiple positions, you can add or related, you can list a broad occupation such as computer software professional. The employer has a lot of flexibility. And the reason why the employer has a lot of flexibility is that the Department of Labor wants this to be broad. It's very important that this recruitment, that this job not be tailored to the individual that it represents the employer's good faith attempts to spread the widest net possible to get as many potentially qualified US workers as possible. So I'm a big fan of H10, Sheila. Okay. Um, So heading back into the meat of the H section, We have, just like you have a very wide expanse available for alternate experience, you have a wide expanse available for education. And again, this reflects the real world. In a lot of positions, the employer is looking for core knowledge, which can be coming from a variety of different um, fields of study engineering, computer science, information technology, information systems, business, engineering, these are all fields of study that are quantitative that can be um, related for the purposes of education training. And so it's important that the employer think expansively, what are my normal requirements? What do I normally look for when I'm trying to find someone for this position? And along with that, the employer needs to think, okay, if a person doesn't have X, would I accept why? For example, if a person doesn't have a bachelor's degree in five years of experience, would I be willing to accept, say, a PhD in one year of experience, or a master's degree in three years of experience, or no education at all in 20 years of experience? It's a conversation that the employer needs to have with themselves. And ultimately, it is only the employer that can decide that. The attorney can advise on what Department of Labor thinks is equivalent. The attorney can advise this appears restrictive. This, the attorney can advise you've listed requirements that your employee does not qualify. But ultimately, it's the employer's decision what their actual real-world requirements for the position are.
1: And this can be really confusing because a lot of smaller companies and businesses who are running at 100 miles an hour and think that their main job in this world is to ensure that they get new clients and new business and meet payroll every two weeks for their 5 or 10 or 20 employees, say, why the heck did I hire you as an immigration lawyer if you can't just help me and fill up all the dots and do everything for me? But under federal law, as Pam just explained, It would be illegal for us to say, well, this is what you should really put in that form or this is what you really should do, because that would be like we're telling you what your job and your company and your job requirements need to be.
0: Right. And I think where we can come in is for some of the more technical nuances. For example, when you're listing those alternate education and experience requirements in H8, well, you have to keep in mind does the Department of Labor consider that alternate to be equivalent to the primary education and experience requirements that you have? And when they're looking at that, they're looking at something called specific vocational preparation. It's the amount of time that the Department of Labor assigns as a value for education and experience. So for example, they consider a bachelor's degree to be two years of specific vocational preparation or two years of experience, and they consider a master's degree to be the equivalent of a bachelor's degree plus two years of uh, of experience. Knowing that and doing that mathematical (laughs) calculation can help you decide whether the Department of Labor would consider your primary and alternate requirements equivalent, and along with that, knowing what those SVP levels are, they can help you answer another question on this form, um, which is H-12. Because what the question asks is not what the question means. The question asks um, whether the requirements are normal for the occupation. And most employers would probably say, yes, of course it's normal. These are my requirements, they're normal. But what the Department of Labor is actually asking is, are your requirements normal for the occupation according to what we say is normal for the occupation? And for that, you have to look at the job zones and the ONET. And again, do the SVP calculation. And that's where we come in a lot of times. It's bad news, but a lot of times your requirements aren't normal for the occupation. And then we have to ask, OK, can you justify your actual real-world minimum requirements? Can you show that they are reasonable to the essential performance of these job duties? And that's, a, that's an analysis called business necessity. So all of that underlying analysis is hidden under a very deceptive yes or no question. Are your requirements normal for the occupation? It looks simple, but
1: it's not. And I guess where it's much more tricky is where the employer says, well, I'm such a small company, I don't care. You can say anything. Let's just make sure that Venki gets his green card, Pam. And what's your concern with that? Because I guess if it's a larger company where which has a lot of people, you want to make sure that they're consistent and they do things and set up proper systems and processes. But if it's a smaller company and they're like, you know what, we don't have time to deal with this. Just take care of it for us.
0: Well, I'll tell you that Department of Labor and USCIS are happy to investigate small companies as well as big companies, and they have the capacity to do so. We've seen an increase in in investigations from Department of Labor and USCIS. We're seeing increased data mining from both agencies. The Department of Labor, they're more than happy to go after anybody that's not taking this seriously. And it's a serious process. The employers are signing this form under penalty of perjury. It's not just a form. This carries the full weight of the law behind it. So it's very important to take it seriously, take it carefully, cautiously, and be sure that what you're saying is accurate and correct. So. Thank you. Another quick question right there, right actually after that question about normal for the occupation, is the foreign language requirement. Foreign language requirement, again, business necessity. You need to show that it's essential for the performance of this job. And more so than that, Department of Labor is very suspicious Of foreign language requirements if you list a foreign language requirement you need to be able to provide documentation about the percentage of employees and or clients that only speak that foreign language and why the employer has reasonable belief that those individuals those employees or those clients are unable to communicate in English and this is going to include things like you brochures that are marketing to that specific population, correspondence that's gone back and forth. If you list business necessity um, for a foreign language requirement, you should be able to see in those job duties the need for that uh, foreign language requirement and be prepared for an audit because you're almost guaranteed to get one.
1: You know, I remember years and years ago, even in a Chinese kind of a restaurant, I think, They and you probably know the case off the top of your head, Pam, where um, Seafood Dragon or one of those cases where the employer was able to show that over 90 percent of its clientele were Chinese nationals and Chinese citizens that preferred. And in fact, many of them preferred or only spoke Chinese. But the Department of Labor said that was not good enough for the position of a manager of a Chinese restaurant. Uh, So even 90 percent of your clients needing it could not does not automatically mean that you can say knowing Chinese language is important because that's an easy way that people think, oh, I can make sure that 99 percent of Americans won't fulfill the job. Because as Americans, most Americans don't learn foreign languages, unlike in Europe or in Asia uh, from the time they're children. Um, But that's probably not going to be enough.
0: Yeah, foreign language requirements, again, you're right, Sheila. It needs, it's very restrictive, and so you need to be able to identify this is our actual real-world business necessity. You can't do this job without that foreign language requirement. Um, the one other thing that I wanted to mention in here before we move on to other sections is the H-14 section. It's our catch-all and I love H14. I'm a big fan of H14. If you have anything that doesn't fit nicely into any other box, put it in H14. If you want to explain something that you've listed there, go ahead. It's an open text field. You can explain whatever it is that you want. The other thing is um, H14 is where we would normally put what's known as the Kellogg language. Uh, The Kellogg language is language that is required to be included that says that the employer will accept any, any suitable combination of education, training, or experience. And that Kellogg language is supposed to be included on the form, and since there is no other place, age 14 is the only place to put it, that language is supposed to be included where the individual is currently working for the employer and only qualifies for the position based on the alternative requirements. So again, how you framed the form, how you answered questions H4 through H10 is going to tell you whether you're supposed to include that Kellogg language. So it's, it's,
1: it, nothing here is simple. It's very deceptive. Well, thank you, Pam. And as you can see, some of you completely missed almost everything that Pam just said or thought, you know what, that's why I'm hiring the multi-law firm or hiring one of the top lawyers in the country to help me, I don't blame you because PERM is one of those that can really be a trap for the unvary. The form looks simple enough. It's just a few pages in length. But each of these sections, as we just explained, are interconnected and they're matrixed, and it's just very, very tricky. So let's now next jump, if we can, Jim, to Section J, which lists, you know, which provides a list of qualifications for the beneficiary and how they meet the requirements for the position and the job that we just talked about in Section H that Pam went over. And I know we're sensitive about time, and we're right around 27, 28 minutes. We try to wrap up though within 45 minutes, so I think we'll be fine. Um, we know you you try to do this during your lunch break, maybe, but. Bottom line is these are valuable conferences with tons of valuable information that normally you would pay several hundreds of dollars for each session. And this is one more free, valuable service of the Murthy Law Firm. So let's jump to Section J if we can, Jim.
2: Okay, absolutely. Section J is where the rubber meets the road. Um, This is everything that Pam just talked about in Section H. This is where you need to show that the beneficiary of the labor certification Actually has those qualifications for the proffered position of section H, um, and one thing you want to keep in mind is section H is about the the position you're you're sponsoring them in. You're talking about the minimum requirements. You're figuring that out, but at the same time, you need to be considering does this does my employee this foreign national I want to sponsor actually meet these minimum requirements for the proffered position. So you want to be thinking about that same time at the beginning of the process before you do advertisement and realize at the end after you've done 60 days, oh my God, this person doesn't actually meet the memory card of the position I'm sponsoring them in. So keep that in mind. Now, with Section J, um, the, most impor- it st- the important section starts with J11, which is the highest relevant achieved education. Now, relevant is an important term. Often somebody will have a a higher degree, say they have an MBA and they're working as a programmer analyst, but the minimum requirement of the the position is, say, a bachelor's degree and two years of experience. You could list the MBA because it's their highest education, but potentially that could be an issue for you because the Department of Labor, and maybe down the road USCIS at the I-140 stage, will say, if you only listed the MBA, they won't know he had a bachelor's in computer science and deny it for not having a related degree. So you really want to think about that and consider what really is the most relevant degree that this person possesses that actually meets the qualifications for the position. Now, questions J17 through J20 are where you actually tell the Department of Labor and USCIS later down the road how this person qualifies for the position you described in in Section H. Uh, so these are these are absolutely interrelated, and it's important to choose the right answers for each. When you're looking at, you know, in some of these questions, they actually, luckily, through 17 and through, through 20, they allow non-applicable as one of the possible options. So you want to look at HJ17. Does this person have training as listed in H5? It could be if it's not a doctor, if it's a programmer analyst. Training most likely is not how they're qualifying, so non-applicable will be the appropriate answer. And so on down the road. So H, you have J18, which discusses the experience in the job offered. You want to think about that. Does this person qualifying for the position based upon the job offered or the alternative occupation that's accepted? That
1: I had just described.
2: Exactly. Uh, and then you have J19 talking about the alternative combination of education and experience. And then J20, the alternative occupation specified. So you want to make sure when you're choosing these answers, they're directly related to Section H that Pam just talked about in detail. Now, question J21, that can get tricky for you. Sometimes it's acceptable to utilize experience gained with the employer to qualify for the position, but sometimes it is not acceptable, and often not, it is not acceptable. So that's why you want to hire the Murphy Law Firm to look at these issues for you and discuss what the relevance is for this person's experience and the position you want to actually sponsor them at the beginning of the process.
0: I think the interesting thing about question J21 is the way that it's worded. Because it's worded in a way that your answer should almost always be no or not applicable the only time that you should be answering yes to using experience in a position that is substantially comparable is if you can show that it is no longer feasible to train someone up in that position as you've trained this individual. It's very limited and the case law on that is not in a lot of people's favor. So for the most part, I'd say 98, 99% of the time, your answer is going to be no or not applicable. And for the people who are no, those are the people who are using on-the-job experience. And I think that's the interesting thing here, Jim. I mean, could you talk a little bit about what would be, what would be substantially comparable, what would um, not be substantially comparable, and when you might be using that?
2: Okay, sure. Absolutely, Pam. Generally speaking, USCIS and Department of Labor have accepted a position that is non-managerial to managerial as substantially different. And more likely than not, you'll be successful using on-the-job experience. So potentially somebody's working as a program analyst, but once again, this is the labor certification process. They may not have their green card for five to ten years from now. And so you're expecting in five to ten years this person to be in a managerial position where they're supervising, overseeing, and managing other program analysts who are actually doing the work. So, for
1: example, like a programmer analyst versus a lead engineer or senior software engineer or project engineer running the entire Project or even CTO, CIO, sometimes.
2: I'm thinking a much more clear line is non of managerial duties as opposed to non-managerial. So mm-hmm. a team. But it leader, is possible.
0: Yeah, I agree with Sheila. Yeah. I mean, it is possible you could go from something like a program analyst to a lead engineer because ultimately the question is whether the job duties of position position A are at least fifty percent different from the job duties of position B. And exactly what Jim is talking about, a lot of what you see is people who are going to a supervisory role, to a managerial role, because in that kind of shift, it's a lot clearer to see the... 50%-plus difference between the two roles, and if you're, if the employer is able to provide organization charts, payroll records, and a detailed breakdown of those job duties showing that they are more than 50% difference, it could be something, just like you said, of a programmer analyst to a lead engineer. And we have started seeing RFEs from USCIS keying in on employers that are using on-the-job experience. and they're asking for documentation showing that they're not substantially comparable that would support it, say, from, like, the, the, the Occupational Outlook Handbook or the Dictionary of Occupational Titles or similar industry information, which is a lot different from, you know, what the Department of Labor says in their regulations. So something like what Jen is talking about, going to a managerial role, a significant jump like that, USCIS is going to be able to get behind that a lot easier than something that's just the simple 50% plus difference, like you're talking about with the program Mm -hmm. analyst to lead engineer. But technically, yeah, both routes are acceptable. It's just a question of clearly explaining it, making the argument, and having already Uh, properly prepared the labor certification to show that you are
1: relying on that on-the-job experience. And so is there a much greater risk of then an audit if it is less clear from the managerial to the non-managerial? I think you always have the risk of
0: an audit with um, on-the-job experience, but quite honestly you have the risk of an audit with everything. Right now we're seeing a 40 to 50% audit rate across the board, crazy, crazy. and we're, we're hearing the same thing from other attorneys and employers all over the place. So there's such a high risk of audit. It's important not to be afraid of it. It's important to carefully prepare your labor certification in anticipation of it. Make sure
1: that all your ducks are in a row. Okay, so let's just jump to the last section before we try to conclude within the 45 minute window. Bam! If I can now jump back to you for to discuss briefly Section K, the work history. So Section K here
0: is um, probably the easiest part to explain, um, but one of the most important parts to to correctly complete. Essentially, if you list it in Section H or Section J, it needs to show up in Section K. If your if the employer says that the position requires um, experience in a specific tool, that specific tool needs to show up in Section K somewhere. If the employer says that training in, uh, is required, if a residency is required, then you need to include that residency. If you say that this position requires a license, then that license or certification must show up in Section K. Even though there's no place to put licenses, you need to find a way to incorporate it. It's really straightforward, Sheila. If it shows up in H or J,
1: it's got to show up in K. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Pam and Jim. So, and thank you to each of you for being here, but as you can see, PERM is the bedrock of a labor certification-based green card case. Uh, as we talked about it, we've used words like bedrock, foundation, et cetera, et cetera. It's, PERM is certainly extremely complex, and the matrix system just makes it more and more tricky So you really need to watch how one section is interconnected with a different section. Failure to cross-reference a particular requirement or a skill can often result in the PERM not getting approved with the candidate, the employee potentially losing, obviously, the priority date and thousands and thousands of your valuable dollars, and most likely the employer losing, you as an employer losing your valuable employee, who is by then quite frustrated with you and will blame you for any of the lawyer's faults because they presume that since you helped them hire or engage the law firm or lawyer that You didn't care about them by not hiring the best that could help you to get the approval of the perm case. So it's certainly helpful and for you to keep in mind the importance of hiring experienced, knowledgeable immigration lawyers that will save you in the long run a lot of time and a lot of money. Uh, Clearly, the Muti law firm has an incredibly strong and dedicated team. Uh, I know, for example, I'm just looking at uh, Pam and Jim. Pam speaks regionally and nationally on PERM uh, conferences across the country to train other immigration lawyers because of her knowledge and experience in the complexities and subtleties of PERM. Uh, Jim McLaughlin speaks in the at the law firm. He talks and he focuses his area of knowledge and work just in PERM. So we don't have our lawyers like most law firms, dibble and dabble a little in this and a little in that and a little in 10 other areas. And most law firms, that you can imagine, don't just do immigration. They do a little contract and this and that. We do just immigration and in immigration, we have H-1B department, PERM department, special projects, et cetera, and the EB1 and IW. So as you can see, uh, you can never be too careful with your PERM application. It's important to understand the form and be thorough to increase the chances of the approval. Uh, With the incredible team we have here, we look forward to continuing to guide you, mentor you, and help you. And part of the reason that we changed our strategy to focus on specific areas is because you as employers sponsor candidates for the green card, sponsor candidates for H1, L1, or other non-immigrant status, and need to understand what is required in the form, what are the prevailing wage determination issues, and other issues that we think will help you to be a better employer or a better HR contact person, and for us to be able to do a better job to help you accomplish your goal of obtaining the approval. So thank you so much for making time in the middle of your day to join us, and we look forward to continuing to take fantastic care of you. On behalf of Pam Janice, Jim McLaughlin, myself and the entire Murti Law Firm, thank you very much for joining us today. Have a great rest of the day.